Well, you might be wondering, why are we focusing on Christmas movies instead of just coming right out of the Scripture itself? And, and the purpose is that sometimes when we have heard these Christmas stories year after year, decade after decade, sometimes when we start to share them again, we've kind of tuned out unconsciously. We know the story, and so we don't have our hearts and minds open to hear what God might want to say to us now. So taking a fresh perspective, looking at some themes that seem to have some Christ-like themes within these movies helps us to refocus and see these in a new light. And besides, one thing I've noticed, if you ever go to the movies very often, you discover that they often seem to borrow from our Bible. Have you noticed that? I remember in 1977, I went in the movie theater to watch Star Wars. And I hadn't heard much about the movie, but when it's going on, all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, this is looking familiar. And Obi-Wan and Kenobi voluntarily let himself be struck down by Darth Vader with that lightsaber and died. And then he came back. Remember that voice that kept speaking to Luke Skywalker? It was like the voice of the Holy Spirit, wasn't it? I, I mean, I want to jump on the movie there and say, hey, do you guys realize this is, this is out of the Bible? So I think we'll see some of that as we look at these Christmas movies, these classic Christmas movies and hopefully it, it adds some depth to your understanding about the Christmas story and what God has done through Jesus as he came to earth as a, as a baby. So just in case you kind of forgot what that movie's about or if you haven't seen it, even then, let's look at a little clip from it. Six girls, four parents, and a partridge in a pear tree. Did we miss the flight? No, you just made it. Yeah. Welcome aboard flight 1275 to Paris, France. <sighs> Terrible feeling. So which house you want to hit first, huh? Now what? That we didn't do something. Crowbars up. Uh, now you feel that way because we left in such a hurry. Do we set the timers on the lights? Mm-hmm. Did you lock up? Yeah. Did you close the garage? That's it. I forgot to close the garage, that's it. No, that's not it. What else can we be forgetting? Kevin! Ah! This is my house. I have to defend it. A few fun facts about Home Alone. It grossed in the first weekend $17,081,000 plus. The budget was only $18 million. almost paid for itself in the first weekend. It was number one movie for 12 consecutive weeks, and it stayed in the top 10 through June of next year, so highly successful. A uh, couple things kind of interesting. The stuntman, there was a stuntman for little Kevin. Happened to be 30 years old, but he still was about the same size. And this scene here where the uh, thief is walking on broken ornaments, glass, it turns out that was actually candy glass, and so he did, use, did actually walk on it with his own bare feet. But when he was walking on snow, they had rubber feet that he used to pull that off. So when I did my research, I discovered that a lot of pastors have preached on Home Alone as a movie theme, as a sermon for Sunday morning. And what would you guess would be the scripture they drew from to make that connection? Any guesses? 
Are there any biblical scholars out there? How about when Joseph and Mary went to Jerusalem for the Passover, and on the way home they realized they left Jesus behind? Yeah, yeah. So that's the usual one. But you know me, I never like to take the, the straight and narrow path, so I want to look at this a little different way. And I see this theme in a couple places. One is in little Kevin happens to be the youngest child, and he's so misunderstood, isn't he? How many of you are a youngest child? Oh, we got a lot of them. Yeah, life was rough for you, wasn't it? I remember how I treated my little sister. I was really cruel to her. And little Kevin, if you remember the, the story, uh, the reason he ends up getting left behind, because he got misunderstood and they blamed him for something that really wasn't his fault. He ends up in the upstairs bedroom in the attic, and that's how they forget him. But we also see it in a little side plot in this movie that I find very intriguing. It's about that next door neighbor. Remember him, that strange neighbor, old man Marley? Well, let's take a look at this scene. Pull that back to our memories. He walks up and down the streets every night, salting the sidewalks. Maybe he's just trying to be nice. No way. See that garbage can full of salt? That's where he keeps his victims. The salt turns the bodies into mummies. Mummies. Of course, the music helps add to the mystery mystery of it and there's a few scenes that go on afterwards remember the scene where Kevin's in the store buying some supplies and he happens to come up right behind him got his hand wrapped with blood on it to help continue that fearful image obviously if you saw the movie you know that stranger next door neighbor was misunderstood and I like to draw upon that to remind us that Jesus was misunderstood in so many ways and the passage that we we read earlier today Jesus is described as the suffering servant as we look back and, and look at that passage. And, and this passage is one that is, is rather complicated. Remember, it was written long before Jesus, and so it had to have some meaning for the people of their day as well. If you read the biblical scholars, they have a lot of debate about exactly who is this suffering servant. Some believe it happens to be somebody the writer might have in mind, the prophet had in mind of his day. Some think it might be some distant future, not any particular person, but the belief that God would send somebody to bring Israel back from, the, from exile into the promised land. And still others believe that, that all these passages are descriptive of Israel as a nation, as a whole, that they have suffered enough, that God has, has ruled that he will restore them and renew them and bring them back to the Holy Land themselves. Whatever the explanation, and, and we'll never come up with a definitive answer, it's still impossible for us as Christians not to look back and say, gosh, this sure sounds like Jesus. I mean, just look at some of the descriptors in this passage. It says, he possessed no splendid form for us to see, no desirable appearance. Reminds us that he didn't come from royalty. He came born into just a carpenter's family. He was despised and avoided by others. You can't help but think about how the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees treated him. It was certainly our sickness that he carried and our sufferings that he bore. talks about the, the piercings that he had. It reminds us of his time on the cross, 
He bore the punishment that made us whole. By his wounds we are healed. By his wounds we are healed. We believe that that cross, that sacrifice had meaning and brings help. It restores us as a people. He was oppressed and tormented, but he didn't open his mouth. Reminds us of how he didn't defend himself when he was brought to trial. So Jesus, this misunderstood, suffering servant. And we believe that it says something about the way he came into this world. That he came as a child of a humbly, humble carpenter's family. Born in a stable where animals would live. He came to the world in that way and in such a way that it tells us that, that he's a particular kind of, of Messiah. And they just didn't understand that in this day because they thought they had something else in mind for that Messiah. That Messiah was supposed to come with power and might. He would rule and he would bring the people and be somebody that the rest of the world would see and understand and look up to and respect who Israel was. Instead, Jesus was something very, very different. And those Pharisees, they just didn't get it. You read this 22nd chapter of Matthew. They even accused Jesus of using Satan to cast out demons. They didn't like that, that he was willing to associate with tax collectors and sinners and women with poor reputations. They didn't like that he didn't respect the social classes of that time and treated everybody equally. And sometimes when you read the Gospels, don't you just shake your head and wonder, why did they not see the goodness that's there, obviously, in Jesus? And the best explanation I can give you is that they were threatened. Their world as they do it and was working so well for them was being shaken up by this misunderstood Messiah. So when I look at that old man Marley and I see how he's depicted, it reminds me of Jesus in many ways. They didn't understand who he was. And I find it really intriguing that it's in a church. I love the scene where Kevin goes to find courage to face the big night as he goes up against those thieves. He runs into somebody he was afraid, but he's not as afraid of him anymore. And isn't it cool that they have this conversation and little Kevin hears the story and discovers all these things that were so mysterious about him are easily understood and he sees that he's got a story too. And little Kevin even offers him advice that helps him get restored to his estranged son that he's worried about and prayed about for so many years since. Isn't it neat that this stranger who's misunderstood ends up becoming the hero, right? Remember, after the big night, looks like Kevin's won and then he's caught. He's up, hung up on the wall and they're ready to give him the punishment that he's been meting out. And who comes along to save the day? Old man Marley. Savior with his snow shovel. And all turns out great. I think there's a couple things that we can learn from our misunderstood Messiah. We are followers of a misunderstood Messiah. And a couple of things we should take with us into our lives, into our ministry, as a church and as individuals, are a couple of things. One is it tells me we need to listen more. I know we have lots of answers. We believe Jesus is the answer to so many of the problems in the world. He's the answer to so many of our relationships. But if we're to work with that world, we need to listen more. Just as Kevin listened to that stranger and discovered he had a story. So many of the people we'd like to help and help transform and make a difference in the world, they have stories too, but we don't 
often take the time to stop and listen to them and hear them. Because if you do, you'll discover that usually God has already been there. Whatever the problem in the world, whatever the individual, God is already at work in their lives. And we're called to just join with that work. And so when we listen better to people, we can more effectively work with people. One thing I discover with so many people, whether I'm counseling with them or working someone in a, in a situation to try to bring transformation, is that often they already know what they should do. They know the ought, but just haven't been able to get there. And all they need is some hope and encouragement, somebody walking beside them instead of doing for them to get where they need to go. And the second thought I'd give you is that we need to be willing to partner with whoever is doing something that is for the glory of God, whether they claim God as their leader or not. Our staff has been reading a, a book walking through it week by week, chapter by chapter, called Kingdom Come. Why the church is why we need to give up our obsession with fixing the church and what we should do instead. Pretty intriguing title, isn't it? It's written by Reggie McNeil, and his, his point is that kingdom is used by Jesus, that word, over a hundred times, whether he's talking about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And on the other side, he notes that the church is only mentioned, that word's only used three times in the Gospels. And so they are not always one and the same. And that we should be focused more on kingdom building instead of church building. And so that means if there's anybody out there in the world that's doing something that makes the kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven, or as he likes to define it, making life as God intends it, then we should work with them. We should be willing to accept them as an ally. As a matter of fact, there's a scripture I think reinforces that. It's in uh, Mark chapter 9. Do you have that scripture? Yeah, there we go, Mark chapter 9. And, and here is a, a little simple quick story. The disciples come to Jesus. They're upset because there's this man who's casting out demons using Jesus' name, but yet he doesn't follow them. They don't know him. How they know he's, he believes the right things or he's doing it exactly the way Jesus wants it. And Jesus basically says, don't worry about it. No one can do that kind of thing in my name and, and turn and uh, be working against us. So he says, whoever isn't against us is for us. Last Sunday, a number of our people participated in the Christmas parade. Christmas Parade is one of those things put on by Noblesville Main Street. Now, Noblesville Main Street is not a Christian organization. They don't have any Christian bylaws, any purpose. There, but their purpose is basically business-oriented to help the town, town square, and to bring more community life to the town of Noblesville itself. And a number of our staff really like that purpose. We think by helping them, we're also helping the sense of community that we're called to love people. And so we've been trying to partner more and more with them. We helped with the July 4th parade, and we had a number of people that helped uh, last Sunday in the parking lot at Ivy Tech helping to stage the parade, getting people where they needed to be so it would all flow together. And uh, it was quite a help. We've had a great team that, who knew what they were doing, and it made things go so smoothly. And then we had a, a entry in the parade as well. We had a pickup 
the wagon. We put people in it. We had a lot of the youth walking side by side, handing out things, handing out candy and so forth. And so I decided to walk along too. I needed the exercise anyway. Now I have to tell you, that is really not my kind of thing. I, I'm not big on being in the middle of the spotlight like that. But it seemed like a good thing to do. So I just said, give me some candy and I'll just hand out candy. And you know, it was kind of fun. I saw a number of our church people, their children, alongside the road. I didn't have enough candy for everybody, so I always made sure they got some candy. And how cool was it to be shouting Merry Christmas and having total strangers that I'd never say a word to most of the time. They're shouting back like fools, Merry Christmas to me too. Now, that seems like a good thing. Somehow, even though it's not a Christian organization, and that event itself wasn't Christian itself, we were spreading the cheer of the Christmas spirit throughout and being a part of all that. That seems like a good thing. I think Reggie McNeil's right. I think Jesus is right. So I encourage you to consider what it means to be a follower of that misunderstood Messiah. Consider what it means for him to be that suffering servant who came to our world in such a humble way, being willing to become one of us in order to change us. May you capture that spirit this Christmas season. Let us pray. Lord, we are thankful. Not just the fact that you sent your son, but in how you sent your son. We're amazed that you are willing to become that vulnerable in our world to us. So help us discover and have that same vulnerability into this world, knowing that we will not always be understood, knowing that sometimes we may have to experience that, that sacrificial way. But in doing so, you are proclaimed in powerful ways. Through Christ we do pray. Amen.